for his purpose. And he goes on. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, a couple things um, I want to point out to you. Um, so predestination stuff. Oh, here it comes. Like this is, well, a lot of people get uncomfortable with the idea of predestination. First thing I want to say, this is, this is kind of the go-to. If someone's going to talk to you about predestination, this is the go-to passage. It's not the only one. Um, uh, 1 Peter 1-2, uh, foreordained before the foundation of the world, Titus 1-2, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ, Ephesians 1-4, chosen us before the foundation of the world, uh, 2 Timothy 1-9. Uh, God saved us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Okay? So there are many places in Scripture where, before anything, the, the, who God has chosen, God has chosen. That is not a weird thing that Paul is coming up with. He's not saying it for the first time. Many places throughout Scripture, and it's not just Paul's, uh, different writers as well, are saying God chooses who God chooses before we even have a say. So, um, I actually teach grammar. I'm a grammar uh, lecturer at IU, and a couple of grammatical features I want to point out to you when we just read. Uh, first of all, um, did you notice that was past tense? Uh, those he predestined, he also called. Okay. Those he called, he also justified. Okay. Calling and justified, like justification, that's the cross. Okay, that's history. Uh, that happened in the past. Those he justified, he also glorified. Ooh, glorified, that's future, right? That's the future. Um, you know, when Jesus comes back and uh, he will, you know, his glory will be known, he will glorify us. That's, but he uses the past tense. Why? Because it's so certain, it's so certain to Paul that it's going to happen that he uses the past tense. It's, it's called the perfect tense. It's, it's done. It's a sure bet. Okay? So one thing he uses the past tense to indicate how certain this stuff already is. And secondly, um, Subject and object of sentences. This is really fun, right, grammar? Um, the subject of, this, of these sentences is God. The object is you and me. We, God is the actor for all of these verbs. It's what God, what God is doing to, with, for us. Okay? It's not like what God is doing with us. It's what God is doing, and we are receiving um, all these things. We are predestined. We are called. We are justified. We are glorified. That's passive for us. Active for God. <coughs> mm, excuse me. So, back to our question. What does the Bible say about faith? Well, let's uh, look at this one at a time. Let's start with faith. Um, faith. Uh, right off the bat, we can see that um, is everything faded? Well, I'm not sure, but uh, certainly we can see that some things in the Christian religion are certainly faded. No doubt, right? Uh, Jesus is going to come back. This is destiny. It was prophesied he would come the first time. Destiny. Okay. We know that for sure, 100%, there are certain things in history uh, that have been prophesied and came to be, came to pass. So certainly some things are faded. This is not like, this is not a contentious issue. Like, Christians agree on this. Everyone can call it kind of the same page here. Uh, this is not a New Testament thing, Old Testament, New Testament. Some things are prophesied and come to pass. Some things are certainly destined. Um, okay. Um, now the question becomes, no, wait a second, we've got free will, right? So if, 
Jesus was called and prophesied, as he is in Isaiah, to come and lead the perfect life. Doesn't that mean he couldn't have chosen not to? Isn't he constrained, in fact, to lead a good and perfect life? Does he have free will? Okay. Put a pin in that. Let's come back to that. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, let's think about from God's idea. We can all agree that uh, God knows all things, past, present, and future, right? Omniscience is a property of God. God knows everything. There's no surprising God. Um, therefore, from, um, from God's eye view, I'm going to argue, from God's perspective, all things are already set, right? He can see yesterday. He can see today. He can see tomorrow. Um, some philosophers, uh, theologians, want to argue that uh, God sees possibility, like he sees maps of possible um, different things that only collapse when... Um, when the time comes to pass. That's a very confusing concept. Some people, well, this, um, I would argue God is outside of time. Uh, Jesus uh, says in John 8, 58, uh, this is when he says, you know, people all the time in the New Testament, hey, Jesus, tell us, are you God? Are you Christ? Is this, is this who you are? We see you do the miracles. Just tell us. You can tell us. And finally, uh, John 8, 58, uh, Jesus says, before Moses was, I am. Okay, what's he doing there? Well, he's, he's making a, he's claiming God. Uh, when Moses reveals himself, I'm sorry, when Jesus, when God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush, uh, and Moses said, who do I say is sent me? Uh, God says, I am. Uh, Yahweh, uh, the uh, Hebrew for that, Yahweh, I am. This is how God identifies himself. And this would not have been lost on Jesus' audience. Um, so, I am, present tense, um, Present tense, um, and I, I believe that this is a claim that he is outside of time, okay? Not before uh, Moses was, I was. Uh, before, Jesus, uh, before Moses was, I am. I continue to be. I, God is unchanging, right? This is another property of God. Um, he exists in this, at the same in all times, in all places. You can see it, okay? So what does this mean? So, what I'm trying to make the case for is that God can see everything. It doesn't matter if it was yesterday, today, or tomorrow. Um, for example, wearing a blue shirt, right? Um, God knew uh, before I knew that I was going to be wearing a blue shirt today, right? Uh, so from his perspective, I would argue then that uh, whether or not I was going to wear a blue shirt was determined, right? But because he saw it, and therefore... He knew, uh, therefore, it couldn't have been another way. Okay, now you can see where I'm getting into the trouble on the, uh, the free will category, right? Um, I want to do my coin trick. I, I remember to brought, bring my notes, which is good, and I forgot to bring a quarter. Anybody have a quarter? I've got a coin trick for you. Any given 
at any given point. We assume that it might have gone otherwise. Scientifically, if you want to prove something, you have to be able to repeat it, right? I know that water freezes at zero C, and it freezes every single time. I can, I can show you water freezes at zero Celsius every time, because I can repeat it. Now, if I'm asking you of any given instance of an act, uh, like a throw of a die, throw of a toss of a coin, uh, any given instance, uh, for sure could have gone the other way. I have to go back and repeat that instance, which is logically impossible, okay? So, what does this mean? Thank you for the work. Yes, more nimble than I. Um, so what does this mean? It doesn't, I haven't proven to you for sure that it couldn't have been otherwise, but I think I did just prove to you that the assumption that any throw of the die could go on, the other, any throw of the coin could go the other way, is an assumption. Does that make sense? Uh, the assumption that it, I could have gone two ways, the assumption that I had Cheerios for breakfast this morning, but I could have had rice checks, it's an assumption that I could have had rice checks. I can never go back and prove 100% sure that I could have chosen something else, okay? Uh, I haven't proven that I couldn't have, but it's at least an assumption to say that I could have. Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, at this point, I want to define free will. Um, I have. Uh, everyone knows we have free will, right? Like this is the uh, this is the idea permeated in our culture. We all know that we have it. Uh, we all know that we are free to choose. Free will is not. How can I say this? Um, I don't think free will is wrong. I think it's a nonsense term. Yes, I think free will is a nonsense term. What do I mean by that? Uh, free choice, yes, we all have free choice. We can all agree with, with that, right? We roll the same thing. We, we have freedom of choice generally. None of us are being coerced to do anything. We chose to come here this morning out of our own free, uh, free choice. <laughs> free will. Um, why do I think free will is a nonsense concept? Okay, we have to define will. What is, what is the will? Will is the faculty by which we choose something, right? Will is the a will is the ability to make a choice, right? Okay, so far so good. Will is the ability to make a choice. Um, uh, reason is the ability to think. Able-bodiedness is the ability to walk. Will is the ability to make a choice. Um, so, if our will determines our choices, right, and it does. Then what determines our will? Is it free? Wait. So if it's free, if if I can choose what my will is, wait. Didn't will determine choice? So what determines the choice? Well, will. What determines will? Well, choice. Well, do you see? This is just a circular. That doesn't really make sense. Um, the late Jonathan Edwards. Okay, Jonathan Edwards is the guy uh, whose book I read on this. Um, he basically just updated for like 2016. Uh, he's an um, 18th century American uh, theologian. He says this, um, the will itself is not the agent that has a will. Um, uh, the power of choosing itself has not the power of choosing. The way Einstein said it was this, I can see that I have the will to choose, but I don't have the will to will, okay? Um, so what determines our will then, if, if Jonathan Edwards and Einstein write about this? Um, uh, Jonathan Edwards makes the case that um, our will is determined by um, 
our external realities, okay, the choices we have in front of us, plus our perception of those choices, our under, what he calls understanding, okay? Um, what do I want? Well, it's based on how I see the world, what I think will lead to the best outcome, uh, and whatever's out there that I can get to that best outcome. That's, that's what determines the will. And that makes sense, right? To say will is free, what does that even mean? That, that will is unhinged to your, re to your faculty to reason, that will is unhinged to the world around you? To say that it's free, un completely unhinged, does it, um, I think, isn't, isn't wrong, it's just logically uh, a nonsense uh, term. Okay. So, so where am I left? Uh, what am I left with? We're all robots, right? Well, not exactly, okay. Um, uh, this is a term I think I made up, maybe somebody else came up with it. Um, I'm a proponent of what I want to call a fixed will. I think we have a fixed will and a free choice. What does that mean? Uh, we have one will all the time? No. Uh, of course your will, uh, your willingness to do something will change as time goes on, right? Like maybe I had, I didn't get much sleep this morning, so my willingness to treat uh, my wife this morning with the love and respect that I'm called to do, maybe my willingness was not high. I got an extra hour, it's fine. Uh, uh, so maybe today my willingness isn't so hot, but maybe yesterday I was feeling good and my willing, okay, so you can see my willingness um, might change over time. Uh, what I mean by fixed will is that at, at any given point, at any given point in time, uh, my will is fixed based on, again, what the, my choices in front of me and my understanding, uh, my perception of those choices, uh, those choices available. Okay? Um, all right. So, there are a lot of Christians, by the way, um, who will argue the other side of this. They'll say, um, now wait a second. If my will is fixed, if it's not true that I could have done otherwise, if it's not true that if my if the coin cost thing, you know, I, I, I could have eaten rice checks or Cheerios this morning. If it's not true that I, uh, if I had to eat Cheerios, if it was already determined from the beginning of time that I'd eat Cheerios, then, then I can't be blamed for eating Cheerios, right? And I can't be praised for eating Cheerios, can I? Does that make sense? If it's fixed, if it's already determined, then how can you blame someone for that choice. It was, it was already going to happen. Does this make sense? Okay, so what's the response to this? Well, Jonathan Edwards, again, comes up with a pretty good one. Um, remember what I said about Jesus a minute ago? That um, he was called, it says in Isaiah, we already knew before Jesus was born, we already knew that there was going to be a Savior, that he was going to live a perfect life, that he was going to be sacrificed for our sins. This is all in Isaiah, right? Um, therefore, isn't it true that uh, Jesus was, in fact, constrained to do just that? Isn't it true that Jesus could not have done otherwise? If he did otherwise, then the prophecy would have been true of God's a liar, right? And that's an untenable case for a believer. Um, if God tells the truth, if the prophecy is real, then Jesus must behave in, in just such a way. He must make these choices. Now, um, doesn't that make Jesus a robot? Or, or at least if he had to do that, and we could not have done otherwise, lest God be a liar. Um, doesn't he still deserve our praise? Doesn't he? Of course he does. Uh, to put it another way, um, you know, if we have the ability to will as we will, um, to choose what our will is, um, 
Uh, some people want to locate, uh, it's not that, that you're doing good, but it's, uh, excuse me, goodness and virtue, okay? Jonathan Edwards makes this distinction, actually he's parroting some, this uh, guy this distinction between goodness and virtue. Goodness is the good things you do in life, the kind things you do to the poor, you know, good, being a good person. And then virtue is the willingness to choose the good things, okay? So, uh, the, the, the choice to choose. Uh, what's good. So a robot can be good, but a person can be virtuous, says Whitby, the guy who, who um, Jonathan Edwards is arguing against. Well, again, um, uh, this puts humanity in a position to be better than Jesus. This puts humanity in a position to be better than Jesus, because Jesus had to do what was good, and it might not be otherwise, whereas we can do either way. Uh, and, our, and if our true virtue is couched in our willingness, um, our self-made will, to choose what's good, then we have a leg up on God in that, and Jesus and God in that way, because also what's true for Jesus is also true for God. God also cannot choose to do evil. Does this make sense? Um, which I think is a great critique on the Jonathan Edwards part. Okay. So, um, so I want to make the case that um, for determinism, um, our actions have been, uh, certainly, clearly our salvation has been determined. I mean, that's, uh, I think that's pretty clearly off the table here. I think scripture, the scripture that I've cited has um, just flatly said, um, God has chosen who he has chosen before, um, before the earth was uh, founded. That much is clear. Um, I'm taking it perhaps a step further, um, saying that, uh, Everything, uh, everything is in fact determined uh, before um, the foundation of the world. Um, and, and, I want to maintain free will. I want to have my cake and eat it too. I don't think it's logically impossible uh, that we make choices and are responsible for those choices. Uh, I, I think it is true that we make choices and have responsibility for those choices. And God already knew um, what those choices were going to be and therefore those choices were I think both of these things are true. Uh, J.L. Packard, uh, theologian J.L. Packard calls this uh, uh, an antimony. Uh, antinomy, yeah. Antimony is an element. Antinomy is a paradox, or a seeming paradox that actually makes sense. Um, uh, and I, I agree with him here. So, um, there are two uh, extreme cases, again, and I want to take the middle road. There's the extreme case of hard determinism, and there's the extreme case of libertarian free will. Uh, I know political theory of libertarian doesn't mean that. Uh, it just means complete free will, okay? Um, uh, there are a lot of scientists and a lot of atheists actually take the hard determinism path. Uh, and I'm gonna get into the reason why they do this in a second. Um, but then the libertarian thing is, is this, I, it could have been otherwise, which is, you don't, I, I think, I, again, I believe I proved you don't know that. You might assume that. Uh, that might be right, I might be wrong. But that's not a provable uh, position. You don't know it as well as you think you know. Even if it's right, I don't think it is. You don't know it as well as you think you know. Okay, so, um, this, uh, this paradox comes to a head right there in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 9, listen to this. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 
Your choices are your own. Okay, you, you make your choices in your heart. You, you figure out what you want to do. Um, but God determines every step that you take. The, uh, the Lord directs your steps. That's what it's saying. Um, now we have another problem. Because you're going to say, wait a second. I've seen some of my steps and some of them haven't been so hot. <laughs> How can God determine that I'm going to make a choice against God's will? How can it be that God's will that I'm going to make a choice against God's will? That's, that's a contradiction, right? Um, I don't know where my note for this is, but I remember it. Um, uh, Winston Churchill. Um, Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of uh, the UK during World War II. Um, and he really wanted America to get in that war because he knew as soon as America got in the war that Britain would be saved, okay? Because we had uh, the biggest uh, industry of them all. And if we could just start pumping out tanks, there was no way Hitler was going to win. So, um, <clears throat> did Churchill want Pearl Harbor to get bombed? Of course not. His mom was American. He's actually, he described himself as 50% American and 100% British, which I love. Um, his mom was, he didn't want a single American to die, but uh, the night Pearl Harbor was bombed, he had a, an extra bottle of champagne, which probably not Paul, um, and, uh, and a cigar, because he knew that America was in the war, and the war was probably over. Um, another example, same guy, um, uh, Enigma. So the Brits cracked, and there's movies about this, by the way, um, Engel, like Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch uh, <laughs> was a, was, <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah, invitation game. It, it's about just that. The, uh, the Brits crack the German code. They know exactly uh, what's, what, what the Germans are up to, who they're going to bomb, what their plans are, and all this stuff. Uh, they crack the code by basically inventing the computer. <laughs> it's actually fascinating. Um, <clears throat> uh, so they crack the computer. So Winston Churchill knows that um, the British are going to be bombed on a certain day at a certain place, and he does nothing, right? Does, does Winston Churchill want any one more Brit to die to Hitler? Of course, of course he doesn't want that. But he, knew, he, had, he had purposes uh, which those people could not understand, right? So, um, what was his will? Did he want people to die? No, but he had, he had a higher purpose uh, than their lives. He wanted to win a war. He didn't want to save 100 lives. He wanted to save 10 million lives. Okay. Now, okay, now we're to the point where if you're going to tune something out, tune what I'm about to say. This is the point where you can play on your phone. Because um, I want to talk to you about science. Um, I want to take a second and talk to you about science because I think this is mind-blowing. The whole reason uh, I wanted to talk about, the whole reason I picked this subject and want to talk about this is because of what I'm about to tell you. Um, because I think science is proving has actually proven uh, this deterministic thing to a point. I told you that uh, atheists, not all atheists, some really smart atheists, scientists, professors, you know, um, psychologists, have gone the route of determinism. And what I'm about to tell you is part of why. Okay. Ever heard of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? Or Schrodinger's cat, or all this fun stuff? Spooky action at a distance? Okay. Um, there is a problem in physics, and 
It's, uh, it's basically this. Okay. So, um, Schrodinger's cat. There is something called superposition, and it's a quality of photons, right? It's a quality of photons. Now, we know that something, thanks to Aristotle, we know that something cannot be A and also not A at the same time. Okay, there's a quality of photons that's A and B. Uh, you can be either A or you can be B. You can have like, uh, think about it like a positive, you can have a positive charge or you can have a negative charge, right? Well, there's this quality when you get the quantum mechanics called superposition where all of a sudden it's plus and minus at the same time. Uh, it's a real thing. Uh, and Schrodinger said, uh, Schrodinger came up with this uh, experiment and said, no, wait a second. If you say you put a cat in a box and you tie these photons to like, uh, to like a, a gun, and if it's positive, it goes off, and if it's negative, the cat lives, okay? Um, what makes it positive or negative is something called the observer effect. What's the observer effect? Okay, if you, if you um, measure the air in your tires, you have to let out a little bit of air. So like your act of measuring the, your tire pressure changes your tire pressure. That's the observer effect. So there's this observer effect um, with uh, uh, Schrodinger's cat that the cat is alive and dead until you open the box to see which, and, and then at that point, it collapses to be either alive or dead. This is Schrodinger's cat, the zombie cat. Um, it is both alive and dead. Okay, there's Schrodinger's cat. This same idea of superposition comes in uh, to something called spooky action at a distance. This is, and this is, I'm not making that up, this is what it's called, spooky action at a distance. And it ticked Einstein off so much, like he hated it. Um, but it's probably true. And it is this. There's this property called um, entanglement, okay? Um, and it works like this. Uh, it, it has something to do with this observer effect. It, it's like observer effect in Schrodinger's cat. In that, there are these two electrons, okay? And they, I believe it's called spin. They have a property called spin. Okay? I'm getting some nods. Okay, good. Um, uh, they have a property called spin. And you can pull them apart, and you know that one has one spin and one has the other spin, but until, again, until the observer effect, until you check, they, they, you can treat them as if they both have both spins, and that's, that's actually how they'll behave. This is mind blowing, by the way. This, if this makes sense to you, then I'm not explaining it right. Um, <laughs> uh, so they. So both of them have both of these uh, properties, and when you check on one, when you determine, aha, here's the, we'll say, plus spin, um, this one gets the minus spin instantly, okay? This is fascinating, guys. I, so just this year or last year, they, they basically proved that this actually is how the universe behaves. I think it was some, maybe Copenhagen, uh, some university, they, they took so they, they pull these electrons apart, uh, they put one a mile away over here, one a mile away over here, and look at this one, and boom, this one snaps into position. That's faster than light travel, by the way. Faster than the speed of light. <laughs> faster than the speed of light, this thing over here affected this thing over here. Spooky action at a distance. 
This makes, okay, do you see why this make, how this makes no sense that this thing over here should be able to act upon something a mile away? That's actually at a distance, and it's called spooky because it is. Um, okay, so, back to digression, makes sense because um, there's this guy, his name is uh, Bell, which is, I wrote his name, his last name's Bell. Um, and he says this, um, you know, there is, a, here it is, John Stuart Bell. There is a solution to this, you know. They said, we want to think that our decision is what caused this to change and therefore that to change at the exact same time. Step back for a second. What if there was something else that caused both of those things to happen at the same time? What if the universe knew that you were going to look at that thing at the exact same time and therefore force this other thing into to behave appropriately based on like mind reading you? Like the, this thing over here, by the way, this electron over here was like read your mind, right? Um, what if it was already determined? that you would check, that you would go in and create that observer effect at just such a time that this one snaps into place at just such a time, okay? Determinism, that the universe somehow knew, and they say universe, we know it's not, uh, that the universe somehow knew uh, that you would make that action, that, that, that you would take that action, causes something a mile away, a, a proton, a mile, uh, sorry, electron a mile away from you to behave in a certain way. Determinism takes us off. Determinism is one possible solution for this. And it, it gets, it turns my crank on. Um, uh, because this could mean that, guess what? The one universe God created actually behaves in a way that's consistent with the book he wrote about it. How about that? I'm absolutely fascinated by this. Um, we, you know, we're just starting to understand all this stuff. So, I like, you know, there, there are scientists that might to make objections with me, but there are some that would certainly be on my side. So, one way to get around a huge problem in science right now is everything that I just said. Okay. Back to the Bible. Okay. So, what does the Bible really have to say about faith? Why should we care? And then we'll get out of here. Okay. Let's go back to Romans 9. Uh, Romans 9, 10 through 16 says this. And again, our topic is fate, uh, God's choice, and our choice. Rebecca's children, uh, Rebecca, of course, is the wife of Isaac. They have the sons of Jacob and Esau. They have the twins Jacob and Esau. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, here's the hardest verse in the Bible. Just as it is, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Let me read that one more time. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very, uh, to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. If you read Exodus, it says more than once uh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. <clears throat> Why? Because he wants to display, he wants to tell a story. He wants to write the book of Exodus in history. Uh, here's the thing. God's allowed to do this. God's allowed to. God's allowed to do what he wants. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, I know what uh, some people are thinking. You know, well, wait a second. If God um, loves Jacob and uh, hates Esau, like, if God hardens Pharaoh's heart, why, like, how can he hold that against Pharaoh? Like, how can he? God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That is unambiguous in Exodus. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh makes these decisions to persecute the Jews, to release them, then take it back, and then chase them down, um, much to his detriment. Um, if God hardened his heart, then how can anyone blame Pharaoh? Right? Paul saw it coming. Paul says this, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? What's the solution? The solution is this, Guess what? He's God. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him that formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble, noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. Thank God. Okay, so it seems that it's not, uh, Pharaoh's not punished, and Pharaoh does get punished. His army is dying in the Red, uh, in the Red Sea, of course. Uh, Pharaoh's not punished because God hardens his heart. Pharaoh's punished because out of that will, out of that God-influenced will, Pharaoh made a choice to persecute, to hate, to attack, to enslave the Jews. It's because Pharaoh still made that choice. God hardened his heart. Pharaoh made the choice. The choice was his. Right? When was the last time you made a choice and said, man, that was a weird choice and came from outer space? We all know that our choices are our own, right? Um, even as they're determined and already known. I think both, again, seeming paradox. Both of them are true. It's not because God hardened his heart that Pharaoh uh, was punished. It's because Pharaoh made the choice to persecute the Jews that Pharaoh was punished. Uh, I talked about all this stuff with my philosopher friend. Um, <coughs> and he said, <coughs> he said he was sure if Paul was writing this today, he wouldn't use pottery. He would use the novel. He would say, you know, doesn't J.K. Rowling have a right to make Voldemort? Doesn't the story of Harry Potter, in fact, need Voldemort? Harry Potter without Voldemort, it's just a bunch of kids running around. It's boring, you know? There's no danger, there's no excitement, they're casting spells. Oh, what fun. Uh, the story needs Voldemort, right? Um, isn't it J.K. Rowling, uh, 
uh, isn't it totally within her right to create uh, this character? You might say, you know, you might look at God and Pharaoh and say, what kind of God does this to Pharaoh? You wouldn't look at J.K. Rowling and say, you monster. How dare you write a, such, such, a horrible, um, such a horrible character as Voldemort? That doesn't make sense. J.K. Rowling has purposes that Voldemort can't understand, right? There's no, like, there, there are levels of reality here. Just as we are down here, and God is up there. His ways are his ways, not our ways, right? Um, and that's what's so offensive about all the stuff I believe it is offensive. I believe the gospel is deeply offensive. Because it says you're in need of a savior, and you're not the savior. Um, <clears throat> uh, what's so deeply offensive about this stuff is that nobody wants to be a created thing, right? You don't want to be, you, you want to reinvent yourself. You want to find your own way. You don't want to be a thing created by God, passive and used for His purposes. But I think that's pretty clearly uh, what the Bible is telling us here. Okay. Um, What's the payoff then? I told you you were going to hear the best news you were ever going to hear. Okay, so what is that? Let's get to it. Let's look at Roman, back to Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Is God really that sovereign? Does he really direct the steps of every single person? That is a wonderful in the sense of like mind-blowing thing. Uh, what do we say about such wonderful things? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, when he also uh, give us everything else. Who dares accuse us, whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. This was not, this is Rome, by the way, early Roman church. So when they say slaughtered, they mean actual slaughter. Um, the persecution was off the charts. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither fears, uh, our fears for today or our worries for tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are basically two things that could conceivably separate us from the love of God. Outer things and inner things. Okay? And he's saying neither of these will ever get anywhere close. No unimaginable, horrible nuclear apocalypse can't separate you from God's love and your destiny. Nothing you ever choose to do internally, no horrible act you ever commit can ever separate you from God's love and your destiny eternally. Nothing. Nothing. And young folks, there will come a day I hope not, but there will come a day where you might wake up and say, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I treated my friends in such a way. I told myself I would go this far, but not that far. 
and I went farther, right? There will come a day, not even that, that separates you from the love of Christ. So what's the best news we ever heard? Romans 9, 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That's the best verse you ever heard. It doesn't depend on your... We know, you know that you're saved by faith. You know that you're not saved by, through your good works. That's, that's Christianity. Right? We're saved through uh, God's will. It, we know that it doesn't depend on our... Uh, salvation is not through our effort. That's Christianity. But I want to remind you, it's not even your desire. It's not even your desire to do good things is what saves you. It's God who saves you. Um, that is unbelievably uh, encouraging to me. Uh, as Jesus himself says to his disciples, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. There's no way around it. You know, some people think about clinging to their faith like white knuckle, like if I can just hold on to my faith. I don't see it like that. I see holding on to your faith like surrendering to gravity. There is no other choice. Um, okay, the last illustration I want to do is this. I can find it. Last illustration. Oh, no, that was two minutes. Here we go. Last illustration is this. Um, there's a poem. Um, it's too long to read, so I'm not going to read it. Uh, there's a poem, uh, 19th century poem, uh, called The Hound of Heaven. And it's so wonderful. And it's about the speaker who does absolutely everything he can to get away from God. He doesn't want, uh, not interested in God's things. He wants to live his own life his own way. And so he runs from God at every turn. And at the end of the poem, the hound of heaven, God, descends on him and says, I've got you, and now you're coming with me. Sufjan Stevens says the exact same, uh, a, a very close thing, in uh, uh, Seven Swans. Um, uh, I think, yeah, Seven Swans is the name of the song. Um, I'm going to read some lyrics to this. Uh, he's going to reference uh, Seven Horns, which is a reference to um, uh, Revelation and apocalyptic end times. So, that's the reference. Sufjan Stevens says it like this. I saw a sign in the sky, seven horns, seven horns, seven horns. I heard a voice in my mind, I am Lord, I am Lord, I am Lord. He said, I am Lord, I am Lord, I am Lord. He will take you. If you run, he will chase you. He will take you. If you run, he will chase you, because he is the Lord. <laughs> Dear Lord, thank you so much that it doesn't depend on my faith or my effort, or even my desire or my willingness to come. And on the irresistible nature of your love, God, if it was anything less, who knows? But God, our hope is, our faith is affixed to be unshakable which is your love for us, from which nothing we do, nothing that has been done, can ever shake. God, how firm a foundation. Amen. Amen. Um, oh, we do communion now? <laughs> okay. Got a little wrapped up. Beautiful stuff. Um, uh, what we'll do now, uh, I'll invite the... Uh, Communion givers to come up. Uh, the way we do this at Exodus, if you've been here, uh, you've seen this before. Um, 
We'll invite people to come up as we sing the last two songs, and this is uh, As You Wish, uh, hop on up, um, uh, and take the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, as Matt always says, if you are in some way stiff-arming God, if there's some way um, that you want to keep God at a distance, it's to your benefit, not to take him. No one checks. We, we don't, it's very important that we don't check. Uh, who's up or down? No one ever looks up. Uh, don't feel bad about that. Um, if you are resisting God's will in some way, it's, it's your benefit not to take. If you are like me, uh, a sinner in 